Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 31. Today's guest is Dr. Sandra Hassink, an expert in pediatric obesity. Dr. Hassink has spent her career looking into the pathophysiology and social determinants of childhood obesity. Her career began at the University of Delaware, where she studied chemistry before heading off to Vanderbilt University in Nashville to study medicine. After graduating from medical school and completing her training in pediatrics at St. Christopher's Hospital in Philadelphia, Dr. Hassink began a long and trailblazing road to treating childhood obesity, starting a weight management clinic in 1988 at the Alfred I. DuPont Children's Hospital in Delaware, before most pediatricians even realized that there was an issue to address in this space. She is now internationally recognized as an expert in childhood obesity prevention. She's testified before Congress and has served as the chair of the Delaware Governor's Council on Health Promotion and Disease Prevention, as well as directing the American Academy of Pediatrics Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight. She has served as the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics and also chaired the American Academy of Pediatrics Obesity Leadership Group, the AAP's Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight Advisory Committee, and the AAP's Strategic Planning Committee. Dr. Hassink is the chair of the Institute for Medicaid Innovation, Child and Adolescent Subcommittee, and a member of the National Advisory Board. She's authored numerous articles for parents and pediatricians, including two books, Pediatric Obesity, Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment Strategies for Primary Care, and the second book, A Clinical Guide to Pediatric Weight Management. This conversation is the first of four experts that I'm going to be interviewing regarding the issue of childhood weight management and the problem that exists in this country of childhood weight gain. There are many angles to tackle, as we'll get into with Dr. Hassink today, of what is really happening in childhood obesity. There are issues related to food, obviously, but then movement, sleep, stress, poverty, uh, and many, many others. And we're going to tackle a bunch of these today with Dr. Hassink before moving on to other aspects of this major health concern for the United States, but also the risk that occurs due to this issue being an economic quagmire as time goes on as well. So this is not just an individual health issue. It is also a societal issue. So we're going to look at this from many angles. For me, as a pediatrician and Dr. Hassink as a pediatrician, we both come at this at the point of we love these kids and we want to see all children thrive in this society. And when we see a societal problem such as childhood obesity worsening year upon year upon year, we have to start looking for new ways of reducing the burden that is childhood obesity. So today, we're going to start that conversation with Dr. Hassink, and she is the perfect person to start with because she has so much history to discuss with her experiences over the past multi-decades. So with that, here is Dr. Sandy Hassink. Well, good afternoon, Dr. Hassink. Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am so grateful to have you here on the show. So welcome. Hi, Chris. I'm so happy to be here with you to talk about uh, childhood obesity today. Uh, well, this is going to be a great conversation. I've been really wanting to have this for quite some time. So, you know, we know that obesity roughly in the 1970s when I was born touched about 5% of the children's lives uh, in existence at that time. And now depending on the study you read, we're north of 17, 18%, which clearly got exacerbated by the pandemic. We're looking at around 13 million plus kids now who are suffering from uh, obesity. You know, Dr. Hasek, you have been on the front lines of the obesity epidemic in the United States uh, for quite some time. You've written voluminously on this topic. You've been in front of Congress. You've advocated for children's health throughout your entire career. So I'd love to get started with just your take on what is the lay of the land of pediatric obesity today? And, and what are our current efforts to stem the tide? So thanks, Chris. Um, you know, I can clearly remember 
when I first became aware that obesity might be more of a problem than we thought it was. And this was in the late 1980s. I had been working in a pediatric clinic and pediatricians started to refer me kids who were having trouble with obesity. And at that point, this was really something we hadn't seen to this extent before. Kids were really struggling to maintain a healthy weight. Parents didn't know what to do. There wasn't really much written on the subject of childhood obesity. We looked to adults for some intelligence and information. And as, as we've seen through the whole obesity epidemic, the adult obesity epidemic has sort of preceded uh, the childhood obesity epidemic. And so now about 60% of American adults have overweight or obesity. Um, over the years, we, we've learned a lot about obesity. And uh, this isn't just excess weight. Obesity really is a chronic disease. When, you, when uh, children and adults have excess adipose tissue, which is fat, um, that fat isn't just sitting there in your body doing nothing. That fat is actually pumping out large amounts of um, hormones, cytokines, inflammatory factors that affect all parts of your body. So this is one of the bigger understandings that we've come to over time, that this just isn't, you know, excess fat that just sits there and you either have more of it or less of it. This is fat that is active in your body and causing a lot of problems. And of course, that's why pediatricians since about 2000 have had, we've had obesity on the strategic plan of the American Academy of Pediatrics for about 21 years because of the health impact of obesity. And as you rightly said, about 18, 19% of kids have obesity now. And we haven't been successful, and this is, makes me actually very sad after all this time, we have not been successful in stopping the escalation of obesity. We just haven't been able to do it. We had some hope a number of years ago, we saw a little dip in our younger kids, our two to four-year-olds that popped right back up. So this has been uh, a, a journey of understanding of uh, trying to find solutions, and importantly, of trying to stem the tide of weight bias and stigma that gets in the way of solution finding, uh, both for uh, medical practitioners, uh, the culture at large, the children and families affected by obesity. Um, obesity started out, and in, in many ways still is, an issue that uh, people judge. They're very quick to judge people with obesity. Uh, parents have told me they'll be in, say, the grocery store with a little toddler who is, has obesity, and people will be out loud making comments to that mother and to that toddler. And this is really hurtful, harmful, uh, not solution-oriented. So many of my patients would come to me just, um, just really at a low ebb because of the difficulty of dealing with obesity and the further difficulty of just being judged all the time. I've had uh, teenagers say to me, I can't, I don't know what to do, Dr. Hassink. If I eat lunch in school, if I eat a regular lunch, the kids are saying, how come you're eating a regular lunch? You know, shouldn't you be watching your weight? And if I eat, you know, very little, they comment on, oh, she has to eat very little. So people feel really caught. And you know, because we're talking today to, to moms and children, I just want to, to, to assure people this is not an issue of blame and guilt. This is an issue where there are many, many factors in, in society, in the culture, in the food supply, in, in the stress levels we're experiencing um, that have conspired to sort of create this epidemic. So um, it doesn't mean we don't individually have to try to take action because we do, we have to take care of our health and we have to recognize health problems and try to take action, but it's, it's not a blame and guilt situation. Yeah. And, and I, I completely agree. You know, as a pediatrician, anything that levels judgment on a child is often going to help, help them unfortunately run in the wrong direction, especially the teenagers. You know, we don't want to make somebody feel worse about a situation they're already in, especially when the the, the the playing field that they're sitting on is is set up to make them gain weight, right? Whether the school yeah. food, whether it's home food, whether it's lack of uh, available spaces to have adequate exercise, whether it's not getting enough sleep because they have their phone in their room at night, so they're um, getting interrupted by friends. There's a million variables coming into this. So mm -hmm. let's segue there because I think that's sort of the key. 
you know, we know, and I've read some of your work that you very clearly state that this starts all the way back in the womb. You know, overweight mothers or or obese pregnant women are more likely to have children who are obese, and they go on to have more problems. So let's start there. Where where do we think the whole thing is starting? Or 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 better yet, you just break it down. What do you think are the most top five variables are involved in in obesity right now? I will be glad to do that, Chris. And first, not to be um, too pushy about it, but I want to make sure we're using first person first language in this interview. We always yes. want to say children with obesity, children with overweight, and not okay. obese children, obese parents. And I'm I'm very um, strong about this because the culture has just insisted on labeling people with obesity right. as right. obese people. So when we start about that, I'd actually like to take a developmental approach here. Um, we will get to the top five, but I think that um, we know that we are we have genetic programming that is actually very dynamic with our environment. So a baby who is in the womb, in a mom who has obesity, will react differently to that environment than they will to a mom who doesn't. And this is because, as we said, obesity is a disease. It, it, it makes you metabolically, there are metabolic changes that occur in obesity. And that child, because of this, will have more obesity risk in childhood after they're born. Now, this is not to say by any means that if you have obesity and you are pregnant, that you are going to be destined to have a child with obesity. This just increases the risk. And what we see across childhood is risk factors just tend to accumulate. So if you have, say, obesity in your family, you may be concerned that the children in your family are gonna have increased risk. And that well may be true. It doesn't destine them for obesity, but they may have increased risk. And then if you add that to, say, having gestational diabetes in pregnancy, which maybe you weren't aware of and maybe you weren't able to control, that may add some risk. So what we're looking at is, I think, a situation of cumulative risk over time. It just adds to this. Um, believe it or not, uh, secondhand smoke has been implicated um, in increasing obesity risk. So. We, we see that there are factors, um, uh, family history factors, factors during pregnancy, factors during infancy. We're spending a lot of time at the Academy of Pediatrics talking about infant feeding and trying to help pediatricians help families really focus on healthy infant feeding and activity because we feel that these habits get started very early and if they continue on, and if, if, you're, if you get in these habits that lead to larger portions, rapid eating, um, comfort eating, that these habits will contribute, again, be additive for risk factors for obesity. So this infant period is, is very crucial for us. So when we look at infancy, we think about if, you, if you're able to breastfeed, that's wonderful because breastfeeding has some protective factor. Again, if you breastfeed your baby, you may end up with a child struggling with obesity, but there is a protective factor. If you can't breastfeed, you can. what we're asking uh, folks to do is think about responsive feeding, paying attention to when the baby's hungry, when the baby's full, really get into that feeding dynamic. This is good for breastfeeding as well as formula feeding parents because many people end up feeding breast milk with the bottle. And when you're feeding a baby with the bottle, you have to pay extra attention to making sure that you're feeding the baby when they're hungry and you're stopping when they're full. And there's all kinds of cues. Babies make faces when they're full. They squirm around when they're hungry. You can teach families that. So getting off to the right start with feeding, introducing solid foods, waiting till if, if you have a risk for obesity in your family, if you're concerned about obesity, waiting to six months before you introduce solid foods. Making sure that your baby is exposed to a variety of solid foods. We want to start uh, introducing the concept of eating a whole array and variety of foods because this le lends itself to fullness and also good eating habits later on. You know, it's so interesting when you think about our young infants. Um, for a long time, we took kind of feeding for granted. We also took activity for granted. And now we know that because infants are often in car seats, they're in strollers, they're, in, they're sitting or lying down a lot, that we have to remind ourselves to put that baby down for tummy time. 
and let that baby move in a safe supervised space because this promotes the habit of activity. And as early as maybe two or three, you can look at kids who are less active and more active and then track that habit pattern further into childhood. So there's a lot of these crucial instant factors that are that I think we kind of took it to, uh, uh, for granted. We said we know how to do this, but in the context of the epidemic of obesity, we have to pay extra attention to them. Yeah, and I would agree. I think that's that's the news to use for folks is to look at these root cause or what I call headwaters to disease issues. So if you can find out where some of these pathways are being disrupted early on and change them, that changes a lot of downstream risk. And I think that's 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 quite critical. And and you know other other big factors I know you've talked about in the past. Sleep is a major one. Um, you know I, I yeah. think that's a big one to talk to about parents as well. Yes. Well, I would talk about a number of things here. Um, Sleep goes in the category, sleep itself, um, too little sleep lends itself to a, another a risk for obesity um, in and of itself and also by promoting tiredness and overeating for energy. Um, routines in general are something that I think uh, are, are somewhat protective. So meal times that are predictable, snack times that are predictable, sleep times that are predictable activity times that occur every day. So these healthy routines, if, if families can get into these routines during the day, they're actually extraordinarily helpful. The other thing families find very helpful is to really look at their environment, look at your home, look at your kitchen, see what's in the kitchen. You know, you can certainly have any food you want in your kitchen, but if you say you have a, a five or six year old who you would really like to uh, have eat healthy and you have snacks in different parts of your kitchen, the five-year-old knows that and they're going to ask you for them and they're going to ask you for them repeatedly. And you're going to have to make a lot of decisions during the day about, is this the time I want to give the child a snack? Is this not the time I want to give the child a snack? Um, so you can mitigate a lot of that by just looking at your kitchen and saying, if I, what foods do I really want my family and children to be eating? Those are the foods I have in my kitchen. Yeah. And, and the other foods you can bring in extra for holidays, certainly you can for that day, but that helps you not have to make a thousand decisions a day about food. Because for example, if everything is in your kitchen that, that is healthy, your decision-making is much less. And we of course know that snack foods and what we would call treats are foods that are basically, oftentimes they're man-made processed foods that are literally engineered to be tasty and to promote overeating. So um, it's hard to eat. Um, you know, a child may have trouble eating more than one apple, but a child's not gonna have trouble eating a bag of potato chips. So um, just being cognizant of all food has different uh, palatability or tastiness. And that uh, years ago, um, the, it, this started, as I understand it, years ago, the Army was trying to figure out how to help the service people um, get enough calories in when they were on maneuvers, and they needed like 4,000 calories a day, and it was hard, and they, their meals were not very tasty, and so they began, began looking into how can we make this food taste better and better and better, and that science got rolled into the food industry, and there's actually a point called the bliss point at which you will keep eating a food even though you normally would be full because the taste of that food is driving you. So parents can kind of under try to understand what's really happening in their environment and take a proactive sort of stance about what do you want in your house and and then how does that impact how many food decisions and things that you have to deal with during the during the day. Yeah, I, and I think it's really interesting that you say that the sort of the taste factor as another reason to drive someone to eat more than they otherwise would, or even the rapidity of, of how fast you compress the food and you don't give your, your stomach a chance to catch up. Mm -hmm. I found it fascinating in Rick Johnson's work that his, what he calls a survival switch when you consume fructose, it turns on actually a foraging behavior um, when the fructose drops the energy in the cell it tells the cell, okay, you know, this is an alarm signal and there's no counter-regulatory effect. So it keeps dropping it. So it sends the, the, the cell into a panic state, which turns on foraging behavior, even though you are well-fed. And I thought that was another really fascinating thing because throughout my career, I always wondered why, 
somebody who is carrying around extra weight, who's clearly calorically satisfied would still otherwise be hungry. And, you know, to get back in the old days, people would blame those folks for, you know, there's something wrong with you psychologically. It's clearly not the case. What's really happening is there's cassettes of genes that are involved in this that are driving behaviors that the person may, may otherwise not control. To your point, you know, we've made food tasty to the point that somebody will otherwise choose to do something in, in the benefit of the taste. So I think there's a lot more here driving psychological decisions from a cellular level that I think is that we need to keep researching to help people understand why pathways like this are, are hijacking their health. Well, there's no doubt about that, Chris. And there's also, I can't tell you how many endless hours I've spent just talking to parents and families about hunger because yeah. hunger at its very base, clearly, if you don't have enough calories and you don't have enough energy and you're starving, you will be hungry. But for most people, fortunately, that is not the case. So hunger can be triggered by many, many things. You can smell food and get hungry. You can associate food with ple pleasant experiences and get hungry. Food itself can be a reward because it triggers the reward uh, uh, circuits of our brain. And you can use food as a reward or a comfort. Um, visual, if you see food, you can get triggered. Emotions can trigger food. Stress can trigger eating because eating in the immediate time that you're eating kind of mitigates some stress. So there are many, many triggers for hunger. And so when a parent hears a child say, I'm hungry, boredom is a trigger for hunger. So when a parent hears a child say, I'm hungry, one of the things we try to help parents do is so take a minute and think, when was the last meal and snack? What could be going on with that child right now? Did they just, you know, finish playing with a friend and now they don't know what to do? Um, what I have asked children in clinic, um, what could you do if you're hungry instead of eat? Now, this sounds like a crazy question, right? But the children really get it. And children will say to me, I could go outside and play. I could color. I could, you know, put my Legos together. So parents, because we're parents and because it's sort of a primal reaction that when your child says they're hungry, we have this primal need to feed, to feed our children. And that is historic and it's survival and it's all good. But to just step back and say, when the child says I'm hungry, just think, okay, if their last meal was, you know, an hour ago and uh, maybe they're a little bored now, maybe go outside and play. Now, if they come back, and you have a healthy snack and it's snack time, that's okay. But I think just trying to get hold of these automatic things that we may do as parents and just take a minute and think what's happening here, what could be triggering the hunger. Sometimes kids, we've had kids even put lists up that's, that gives them ideas. What can I do when I'm hungry besides eat? Go do something, see what happens. Often they go do something, they get engaged and they can wait till their next snack or meal. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, sort of giving them another opportunity to think of, of uh, fun activities, but I think you also noted in some of your pieces, the gamification, you didn't call it that, but that's sort of what I'm calling it, the gamification of how they have access to food. So putting the foods you want them to eat in the front of the fridge, putting the foods you don't want them to eat in the back of the fridge, talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that, because I think that's really important for parents to hear as well. Yeah, well, I think that we know, we know you know, if the cookies are on the counter all the time, we know as adults, what are we going to do? We can watch our own behavior. We're going to eat those cookies. Now, you can make the cookies less accessible, but I would caution people not to hide food because children, it, now you've really made it a game, but you've made it a game that you don't want to make, right? Because <laughs> when something is hidden, children will try to find it and they know it's hidden and they will, they will look till they get it. So I think it's this dynamic between making healthy food um, attractive and accessible, knowing that there's a role for the higher energy dense foods, but it's not every day all the time. When you look, for example, at cookbooks that were made maybe in our grandmother's generations or uh, that they had a lot of cakes and cookies in those. But when you look at how they actually ate, you had a cake on your birthday. Like you didn't have dessert every single night or at every meal. So again, kind of looking at those patterns that we've developed over time and seeing is there some way there that we can, we can uh, address this. The other thing that happens with food is 
uh, I don't know if you've seen them, Chris, but these toddler pouches where the food mm-hmm. is in like a semi-solid pouch. And that just sort of bypasses chewing and satiety. And chewing is really important because when you chew your food, you feel more satisfied. So things like that's why people struggle so much with sugared beverages and sugary drinks, because first, it's hard sometimes to think that, you know, you don't really appreciate all the time that you're drinking a lot of calories, but they're not really as satisfying as if you had to chew, say, that many apples worth of calories. You literally couldn't do it, right? Right, right. So I think that there are things that bypass our normal triggers for satiety, like these pouches and semi-solid food and a lot of the sugary drinks and, and food that's, that's in forms that um, don't allow us to really get the satiety factors of the food totally. Yeah, so let's pivot here because I think it's a good segue point to talk about school food because a lot of my children, we have a 70% plus Medicaid population and these wonderful children are getting 60 plus percent of their meal calories through school-based food nutrition. So I went online just before um, you know, coming to speak with you and looked sort of at just a, 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 a Southeast middle school breakfast. And they had the item choices were sausage biscuit with a, with a muffin chocolate chip and, and juice. And so I ran that whole thing calorically. I mean, it, it, it was about um, over a gram of salt. It was uh, 712 calories. It was 37 grams of sugar, which is nine packets. 13 grams of saturated fat, which was 65% of their day saturated fat, 91 total gram carbohydrate. I mean, it's like, it's a massive amount in a small amount of time for these little kids. And, and, and so why have we not been able to make better headway in school environments to provide healthier food options? To me, to offer a child those three things on the same menu, we're just setting them up for, for, for trouble. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. And we've spent many, as pediatricians, we've spent many, many years trying to (laughs) and advocating for healthier school meals. You know, it's hard to say how we got into this predicament. Um, One very simplistic way, one of many, is that children will eat what's tasty. So that that if if unchecked, people will start serving kids what they will eat and and, they'll Therefore, there won't be as much food waste. So if you have, you know, if you you have a choice between, you know, the muffin and maybe a cut up apple and you're looking at your trash cans after lunch and seeing there's no muffins in there, but there's a lot of apples, you know, people sort of, they they put the cart before the horse. They think, well, clearly I should serve the kids what they'll eat because they won't waste food and they'll actually eat the meal I'm giving them. So there's that. There's, um, there's, there's standards that the, the, the thing that's hard to understand is that our meal standards for children, and we've tried to improve those, but they don't always get operationalized the way that you'd like them. And school meals tend to be under local school board control. So it's not like you can put one meal standard out and have your whole county or your whole state or Uh, follow that meal standard and follow those eating patterns are under local school board control. So you have, you have to go school board by school board to figure out what's happening. Do the folks, are they well-trained to cook nutritional food? Do they have the equipment to cook nutritional food? Do they have the budget to get nutritional food? You know, do they have the, frankly, advertising of the food in the school to want have the kids engage in wanting to eat that food? And do they have nutrition education? Because sometimes you have to kind of encourage the kids to eat food. So it, it, there are all these questions that have to be asked and, and they end up having to be asked at the very local level. And I think they all, what we know in sco- schools, chefs have gone into schools. They've cooked really delicious, healthy food and they've promoted that food within schools and the kids eat that food. So it, it's not mysterious, but this kind of targeted approach really has to be done. And it's been hard because it's a lot of work at, you know, over and over again at the local level. And this has to do with the fact that our culture doesn't promote healthy eating. I'm, I, I was flying on a plane once and I, I, I uh, met a, a man from England who his whole business was growing tiny little fruits 
like little tiny pears and apples so they could put with the kids' lunches to make attractive tiny little fruits so that they would eat them. And they, they were kid-sized fruits. Now, I don't know that there's anybody in this in, in this country that is making kid-sized fruits, you know, for the kids to eat. And the French, for example, think that school is the place where their children learn about French cuisine. Right. And they are very, very focused on giving the best food to those kids at school because this is where they learn about their cuisine. So it's both what's happening in the school and then the, the influences of the culture that kind of impinge on how hard it is to make the change to healthy food within the school. Um, and of course, we know on the flip side, there's a lot of hunger in this country. So on the flip side, you do want kids to eat and you do want kids to have breakfast and you do know that connection with learning. So, so we have to be aware of that dynamic. Um, it's a long answer because it's a complicated issue. And, and we really have been, you know, we've struggled and are still struggling to get traction on how exactly we should be giving our kids the best food, I think, at school. Yeah, and, and I've thought about this long and hard for a long time, and I think it's not a matter of tax dollars, and that's the one thing that annoys me to no end. When you look at our tax revenue as a state and tax revenue as a, as a federal government, we have more than enough money to do this the right way. Mm -hmm. the, the The problem is the willpower to get the, I, I think, again, mm -hmm. this is just my opinion, these major conglomerate companies who've taken away our kitchens and sort of put in reheating facilities, they're not, they're not going to want to give this up too easily. I mean, all the pancakes mm -hmm. come in frozen and they're going to get reheated. Back when I was in school, there was kitchen. There were, there was the, the, the staff back there who are wonderful people making the food fresh for us. And, and I think we have to make that primary goal. Number one is to get back to having an actual kitchen in schools mm -hmm. with chefs. And mm -hmm. I think then we'll have a chance because to your point, um, about 15 years ago, I led a project in our local county to give kids healthy food. And one of the rate limiting steps was chopping the vegetables. It was very expensive to have mm -hmm. the manpower. So we gathered up some money and got a lot of these industrialized choppers and put them in and started making some of the food, had taste testing with the kids. And invariably, it, it, it sort of died on the vine and sort of went back to the old way. And the choppers just sort of sat there and, and, and the people didn't take it and run with it. And so I think this has to be a, a, a major push to get back to a, a, a nationalized system where we're looking at it like the French do and say, our kids are our pride and joy. They deserve the best food. And here's what we're going to do to make this happen and put the money behind yeah, it. And Until we do that, it'll be a struggle. Yeah, and and I think that there's some there's some interesting things, maybe not going there that that give us some hope. One is school gardens. So mm -hmm. many schools have put in gardens. Um, there's a movement to to engage children in cooking. So when mm -hmm. you were when you were thinking, we taught in my clinic, we taught a cooking class for adolescents, and um, we you know they uh, it was very successful and they liked it very much because they actually came to the class, not knowing much at all about actual how to cooking. And we have generations now that don't know a lot about cooking, but with respect to the schools, you know, we know that kids who participate in meal preparation, healthy meal preparation are more likely to eat that meal. So I'm thinking of your industrial choppers, but I'm also thinking of what about a health class where kids learn to, to prepare vegetables right. or, right. you know, what about, those kinds of, I, I call them innovative. They're not really that innovative, but they, they need, as you said, um, the, the desire to offer our kids the best food. And food uh, and nutrition are really health issues. They're not a sideline issue. Right. But oh, by the way, we have to feed the kids. Nutrition is a foundation of health, right? Uh, and when I um, would speak about the foundations of health, nutrition was always a foundation of health, nutrition, nurturing environment, nurturing relationships and healthy environments. And so um, I, I think that we're still not getting the point that this isn't just a, a, an economic thing or a sideline or uh, we have to do the meals so we do. This is integral to their actual health, this good nutrition. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, when you stated earlier in the, in the podcast, you know, that these fat cells are metabolically active and, and immunologically active, the disease processes we're seeing in these young kids now from the autoimmune type to the allergic type, it, it is uh, exponential. And in, in, I have two kids with MS now. We never thought we'd see MS in young people. And I think yeah. the, 
the, the, the, the dysfunction that's happening cellularly inside our bodies is, is driven in, a, in large part by this food problem. Even a child who is not overweight, who eats poor quality food is going to be at significantly high risk for dysfunction because the foods are driving some of these metabolic derangements. So I, I, I really think we as a culture need to spend a lot of our bandwidth trying to get school nutrition. And to your point, I would love to see something in where it's almost like a community-based service in the school where on a Monday, one group of kids cooks and serves the next day, another group of kids, mm-hmm. and they sort of serve each other the whole time. So they're right. involved in the meal prep. They're involved in the cleanup. Yep. They're being supervised mm-hmm. by adults. It's it's that to me is when you start to get a communal environment where we see change and the kids are a part of the process. And, and that, that's, that would be a beautiful thing for me to see. And it would be beautiful because just from my experience with our adolescents, learning how cooking techniques and how to plan a meal and what we would, we had them do is they cooked in the class, but they didn't eat it in the class. They took food home and fed their families. So if you had five people in your family, you took enough food for five people. And let me tell you the pride that those kids had in cooking for their family and the pride that the parents had. Yeah. And the, the one mother said to me, I have something positive to talk to my kid about this wonderful food that, that they're cooking. And I think that I just want to spend a minute because, you know, we talked about these inflammatory factors and these, these uh, metabolic factors. And I, we see children now that have diseases that back in the eighties, we only thought adults got to your point. So we are seeing type two diabetes. We're seeing liver disease in children. In fact, fatty liver disease in within the, about the next uh, 10 years will be the most common cause of liver transplant, fatty liver disease from obesity. We see sleep apnea. We see hip and knee problems, some requiring surgery from our kids. We see lipid problems and hypertension. So we see th- this array of what we call obesity comorbidities, that these outcomes from obesity that we only thought in the past might occur in sick middle-aged adults. Like, and now we're seeing these type two diabetes in school-age children and liver disease in preschool children. So it's been alarming. And I think that that fact of these diseases, uh, is is in, incredibly alarming and I think somewhat underappreciated by people that these diseases really are chronic diseases of adulthood that have literally come down into childhood to our youngest children and are compromising their lifelong health. You know, because if you get type 2 diabetes as a 10-year-old, just think about that. Yeah. Think about the wear and tear on your body, the devastation, the need for treatment for, for 70 years. If, you know, so, so I think that this is what we are so as pediatricians alarmed about that this isn't, this obesity is the canary in the coal mine and behind obesity comes this whole array of comorbidities and diseases caused by obesity. Yeah. And you'd think the folks at the federal level who are looking at the economics of this and realizing the downstream economic costs of these burden uh, these disease burdens in such a young age is going to be unsustainable. And, and why not go up to the headwaters again and take that money that you're going to spend in 10 years on all these drugs and put it up to real healthy food and giving these kids options to have access to a healthy paradigm that takes these downstream risks away. It's a, such a short-sighted way we do things. And I, I, I struggle with the reality of, you know, how we're going to get out from econo- the economic burden of these, these diseases. Cause it's very hard to reduce, as you know, uh, in a, a, a person that is struggling with overweight or obesity to get them to come back from there. Once they've gone down that road, it's very, very difficult. It's much easier to prevent it. Yeah. You know, Chris, I'm thinking as you say that, that I think I wish that the people making policy and the officials would think more like parents. And in that, I mean, when you hold that baby in your hands as a newborn, you think about the baby and it's overwhelming, but you're also thinking ahead. You're thinking, I want to give this baby a good home. I want to make sure my child is educated. I want that child to grow up to be a healthy person and have, you know, purpose in life. So parents tend to think long-term when they can get out of the fray because we're in the fray as parents, but we do have this part of us that thinks long-term like 
what we hope for and what we want for our children. And I think in our culture, that's missing in the wider culture, this hope for children, this, this sort of intention that children are really precious and we need to, to make sure that they, they grow up in, in good environments, good food, good relationships, good physical environments, because they're our future and they're our treasure. And I think it's this lack of this long-term thinking that really is, has gotten us into trouble. Um, yeah. And, you know, instead of finding the solution that works right this minute, looking at the longer term of what we're really doing. Well, and, and and then you think about the realities of we're working on this this problem, and then all of a sudden there's a new variable that comes in, screens. You know, in the last 15 years, screens have become omnipresent. And, you know, I remember as a young kid, if I was homesick for, from school for a day, you know, the options to watch TV were, were sort of hard because, you know, it'd be like, okay, you had, you know, whatever the game show was, then you had three hours of soaps, which is terrible. Then you wait till five o'clock yeah. for one of the monster movies. Now a child can sit and watch eight hours of whatever TV show they want and not, not bat an eye. And, and that lack of movement now is ushering in a whole nother problem into this, into the obesity variable epidemic. And, and I think that's another piece that as we're struggling through X, Y comes in and maybe Z now comes in and how we, 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 we really have to struggle. So that's why I always keep coming back to when it comes to me, uh, children struggling with weight gain, it has to be food first for me because these other variables are always going to be difficult. We're going to try and challenge them. But if we control the food intake, I think it's very hard to get overweight. If you have a control over the food variables that are, that are dysfunctional. And to me, the biggest one there is the, the liquid beverages. I think the liquid beverages are probably where most of the damage is coming to in, in our, in our young children. Yeah. I think sugar beverages are a prime, what we would call prime target. Like yeah. if you see a child with obesity, and, you know, I take, you know, thousands of dietary histories of, of these kids. And, you know, not all kids are drinking lots of sugared beverages, but the ones who are, that's the first target. That is yeah. the target. And I think what makes obesity so difficult is it's all of the above. It's food. And then, as we talked about, additive risk. And screens, now, we know screens in in advertising, there's an added risk for food advertising on, on the screens, advertising food, uh, unhealthy foods embedded in games and on the TV. So that's a risk. And we know that children and families are influenced. But we also know that sedentary time has come up as a huge risk factor for cardiovascular disease, for obesity, for these other chronic diseases. And um, for, for example, um, you know, what if we just said, okay, we have screens. Um, well, let me give you this first example. Uh, I was talking to a, a young lady who was age 12. And I, I, I started when I first started asking children about exercise, I would go, how much time do you spend outside? Where do you go? What do you do? Well, over the years, I, I realized kids were doing less and less. So my question became, do you ever go outside? Oh boy. And so I asked this young lady, do you ever go outside? And she looked at me and she said, Dr. Hassink, you know, I don't go outside. I'm an indoor child. <laughs> and I just sort of roll, rolled back in my seat and thought, I have never heard of this. We now have indoor children, you know, self-defined. I mean, this wasn't the mother telling me. This was the, the young lady telling me herself. I'm an indoor child. So, <laughs> uh, so we have sedentary behavior, which is a big risk and children who don't go outside. And for, we can talk about safety and opportunity and neighborhoods and community and lifestyles, but we have children who don't see nature either. So we have, we, we, we've skewed the playing field for our children so much. So, so now I say to parents, okay, I used to say, let's limit screen time to, you know, this much. And now I say, let's let's turn off the screens and sometimes i start with half an hour a day which to some families is huge because these things are on all the time and i remember talking to a nine-year-old boy and he's sitting in clinic and i said um we were talking about at that point the, the television which he was watching almost all the time and i said what would happen uh what what would happen if we turned off the tv for like an hour and he started to cry 
And I said, what's happening? And he said, I don't know what to do. Mm. I literally like don't know what to do. If you would turn off the TV, what am I to do? So it's, again, it's, it's a combination of the screens and the TV and the inside. And then the kids, when asked, they don't always have the stuff in their head to go out and say, well, instead of TV, I'll go, you know, go find leaves or I'll play with my dog. So you have to help them do that. And I think parents need to help them get these, um, this interior resilience that says, if I can't watch TV, what is it else that I could be doing? And families can do that by, you know, doing some family activities and encouraging some of these other activities for the kids, because, you know, the kids are okay. And, and, and of course, then you have the issue of many kids have said to me, I would be glad to go outside and play. But when I look outside, there's nobody out there. So in other words, they would go, you know, three kids were out there and they looked out their door in their yard, they would go out, but because there's nobody out there, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to, you know, get that started. So all these things are, are sort of circling around our kids. Yeah. And I, I think of when I was growing up, you know, my mother would just say, Hey, you know, get busy doing whatever and you're, it's okay if you're bored. And, and that's not a, that's not a problem. And, and frankly, I, you know, my mom, she had a cowbell and when she didn't want us in the house, she threw us outside <laughs> and she said, just come home when I ring this cowbell and I don't yeah, want to see you yeah. until I ring the cowbell. Yeah. And we yeah. were outside and, and we just did yeah. what we did. And I think, you know, yeah. we, we need to be okay with letting our kids be bored. But I think to your point again, I think being involved and in helping them learn some new things to do, great. But sooner or later, they also have to get bored and they have to sit yeah. there and, and experience life um, in any way, shape or form it comes at them because the passive existence learning um, through TV and screens is just, it's unfortunately exceedingly detrimental on so many levels, not just the, the, yeah. the weight gain level. You know, I think the, the, the mental health side of this thing from the passive existence, I think is, is a big struggle because what kind of self-esteem do you have from sitting on a chair all day long watching TV? You're not going to have any quality self-esteem. And I think right. that that's going to come down to haunt all these children. So I'm going to segue there because that's another big one that I've noted in clinic over time, these adverse childhood events. And when I see some children struggling with being overweight and they're significantly struggling, often to me, that's a red flag for they had some form of a, a adverse childhood event. So what do we know about the connection between adverse childhood events and, and later nutritional decision-making? So, you know, it's, it's just to your point, uh, a lot of times I'll be looking at a growth chart and you'll see a kid who's maybe gone along okay in the normal weight range. And then all of a sudden there's this point where the weight goes up. And if you say to the family, what happened at that point? They might say, well, you know, maybe there was a divorce or maybe the grandmother who lived with them passed away, or maybe they moved to a new neighborhood, but there's, there's oftentimes something that happened. And so one of the things we learned is that when families are stressed, the first two things that go out the window are nutrition and activity. Like under stress, it's hard to hang on to healthy nutrition and activity lifestyle. And we kind of all know this just from looking at ourselves. Um, and so we know that, that what we would call the, the stresses of living, like the things I mentioned, can often derail you from healthy living till you regroup. The trouble is, it's hard to regroup and it takes maybe a long time. And by that time, the kid's on a different path. They're now used to eating differently or unhealthy foods or not going outside. Um, so those kinds of things can, can happen. Um, trauma is also just trauma, traumatic events in your life with stress. We talked about food as a comfort kids. What do kids have to turn to when they're stressed? You know, if you're a little kid and you're stressed, what might you turn to? Well, you might turn to food, you might turn to screens. You know, you don't have a lot of repertoire as a child sometimes to mitigate your own stress. So children under stress often, the environment changes, the people around them change, their own stress level and responses to food and activity change and stress itself gets your body in a state where you're more likely to gain weight. And there's plenty of experiments to show this, that if you, even with the same food, if you're stressed, your body, your blood pressure is up, your glucose is up, your cortisol is up, you know, you're in a weight gaining sort of frame when you're under stress. So all those things can contribute to, you know, this 
weight gain, what I call the trajectory of this increased weight gain in a kid. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've, we spend a lot of time in our clinic trying to ascertain some of these variables um, related to mental health to try and help unwind whatever it is going on in the child's mind that, that will predispose them Mm -hmm. to making decisions that aren't in their best in their, in their best health. And of course, leveraging social workers and counselors to help because they're fantastic at really being a part of this child's life. But uh, you know, unfortunately, in a lot of the cases, you know, it's the home and you can't get these kids out of these homes in order for them to be away from that bull that's driving that cortisol response. And, and then that, that that's a very tricky one um, that I've noticed over time, because a lot of these adverse childhood events are, you know, things that are very hard to ferret out. And, and so again, it, it lends me to the situation that we spend a lot of time talking about the food and then a lot of time talking about control what you can control. Cause I think that's another yeah. reality for children. That's, I think society has not done the best idea. Uh, I mean, not done the best job of letting kids know that, you know, things are going to go wrong in your life and it's, you know what that happens mm-hmm. and it's how we perceive them. You know, one of the, the guests, Dave Rakel once told me he's a, a fantastic um, speaker and he was saying how. I hold a pen in my hand, that pen, if it's signing a divorce paper is a really nasty pen, but if it's signing a million dollar check from, you know, the sweepstakes, it's a great pen, but it's still a pen. And that perception of that pen is what's making the difference. And I think we spend a lot of time in clinic trying to help kids understand perception is, is a very, very important way for you to rise above any event in your life that could be, you know, putting a stranglehold on your, your vital essence of, of health. And, and so we're, we, we really try and from a holistic perspective, uh, head down that path as much as we can, because, you know, you can't change the past. I mean, the past is sort of like a, was a Lion King statement, you know, the past is the past. And that reality mm-hmm. is, is, is not lost on a lot of, on a lot of our kids. Well, Chris, I love the holistic approach you're taking to your children and families. And so I, I, I think that a couple things, one thing. Obesity is always a family affair, so to speak. You can never just treat the child or address the child. It's always the family. And, you you know, many times we've had many family members in clinic with us, extended family members who take care of the child, all talking about the food, the activity, how we can help the child. Um, The other thing is um, children, you can get so focused on the weight of a child, this happens that you forget that there is a child there who has hopes and dreams, who needs meaning to their life, who wants to do better in school or find a way to, to make friends. And so I think what's really important here is to, to see obesity in the context of the child and to start to, to really begin to address strengths of the child and family or resilience that you can build. So Oftentimes, a simple example would be a kid might be being bullied in school, and we would work to find, say, another peer group, another sport, another activity outside of school where they could learn, they could excel, they could get another uh, way of getting positive feedback. And so, uh, you know, many of the kids, one time I remember um, it was a family who had access to horses, and I said, well, why don't we we try horseback riding, which was phenomenal for this kid, you know, gave the child a whole new outlook on who they were and their life. Um, so uh, yeah, one time I said to a mom and they had, the family has to have access, like, um, you know, you have an ice skating rink right near you, take him ice skating. And he was little and it just changing that up and giving the kid a sense that you can do things. You can really do things. You can accomplish something. And there are people, other people, maybe not your peer group at school, but there are other people who can really be positive and help you do those things. So looking at the whole child and realizing that the kids really want to be engaged with other children, to have positive experiences in their life, to get positive reinforcement, to find meaning and purpose. I mean, all those things are what we all want. And I think what you're saying is to look beyond the weight and to look at that whole child, because those strengths can help you deal with the challenges of weight. You know, if you're, yeah. if you go and you feel positive about something that you're doing, you bring that positivity back to the challenge maybe of changing your, your eating patterns or uh, home activity patterns. So 
I think that it's so important to look at how we uh, help the children and families sort of build and gain strength in order to address some of these really big challenges that we've been talking about. Yeah, and I think uh, in clinic, being non-judgmental has to be first and foremost. And I think there's been way too much judgment laid upon these children. And I can tell you, even from my own perspective, when I was a young kid, you know, we were, we grew up in an era where that was the norm. You know, you looked at a kid who was overweight mm-hmm. and you were, you were meant to believe that it was a child's fault that they were that big and there's mm-hmm. something wrong with them and they, they can't stop eating. And then you fast forward to now we're like, Oh, we were so wrong on every level. And now it's yeah. all about for me, leveraging purpose, right? So I think you've mm-hmm. stated it very clearly. Like if each kid has a purpose, they're more likely to want to make better health decisions for themselves because their sense mm-hmm. of self-worth is higher, which means they want to take mm-hmm. care of themselves. So the whole child approach is, is definitely by far the best approach. And, and I, and I think we should keep the, the focus on the whole child, their mental resiliency, mm-hmm. their, their choices. And because again, you know, many of these family units aren't the best. We want to engage the family unit, but there's plenty of families you can't engage. So Mm -hmm. at that point, I just sit down with the kid and I say, listen, I'm here for you. I love you. Let's talk about what you need and how I can help you. I can't change some of these other things, but what can you get out of this visit? And that has worked better and better and better as the years have gone on. Because again, I'm I'm offering the child the the ability to take back their own power. And I think that's another Mm -hmm. big piece. Like you know, you can take this back. This is you. This is your life. You're a beautiful human. You weren't raised to be, you know, X, Y, and Z. You can choose any path you want. And so, yeah, I love that stuff. I think if we could keep yeah. the better part of the medical community focused on the whole child, we'll be better off. Well, Chris, you said the operative word there. That child knows. Children are very savvy. They know when you're being authentic. They know when what you if you really mean what you're saying. And when you say, I love you, I care about you, I want the best for you, that is so incredibly powerful in a child's life. Yeah. Because I always look at it as you're forging another link in the chain of that child's self-image. They're they're feeling able to feel good about themselves. They feel that somebody is reaching out to them. And you know, we sometimes underestimate our role as mentors and teachers of our patients, but right. it's right. very, very powerful. And I've never had a family, people say, well, how do you talk about weight? It's very difficult. I said, I've never had a family um, respond negatively when I've said to them, I really care about you. And I'm looking at your family history. And I'm worried that this may catch you up. And I'd, I'd like to talk to you about that. Like, that expression of care and concern and love for your patients so incredibly powerful and maybe the most powerful thing in many ways that we can do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that again is more news to use for the parents here that, it, you know, we're not here to judge. We're here to love. We're here to honor and mm-hmm. we're here to help. And if we can do those things, we yeah. give everyone a really good chance of success in the future. So Sandy, I want to be conscious of your time. You have been an amazing wealth of knowledge here. I tend to ask all of my guests one question, and it, to me, it, it means a lot because someday I hope to have the ability to do something like this. But if you were able to have a golden ticket that you could hand to, to President Biden or to Congress to get one big thing changed, what would you choose? There are so many things, but honestly, um, I would like to see no child hungry in this country. I, I, I think that of, of the many, many things we talked about, that is one of the things that I think we have, we, we have no excuse for. So, yes. Yeah, that, those are the most perfect words. We have no excuse for. To be this wealthy, industrialized nation that we are and for a child to go hungry is unconscionable. And, I, and I've stated for a long time, I think that that a child up until the age of 18 or whatever year we designate should have no questions about the access to quality school, the access to quality food and the access to quality medicine. There should be no questions that yep. those three are inalienable rights. And right. the fact that they're not right. across the board set up to be there is, is, is a bit of a mess. So, you know, yeah. I'm gonna end here, Sandy, your, your advocacy, has been 
fantastic for these children. I want to thank you personally for all the work you've done on behalf of the AAP, on behalf of you know uh, all the children of this country. You're you're you know stopping and and tooting the horn and trying to get everything changed is is what we should see more of, hopefully in other people over time, because we need more folks like you changing the world because the world needs changing. So yeah. thank you for your hour. Uh, you're welcome, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Well, hope we'll get get you on another time for more discussions. But today, today has been fantastic. And, you know, I, I just want to say thank you again. Bye bye. Absolutely. Bye bye. Well, I hope you appreciated that conversation with Dr. Hassink. She clearly has a robust understanding of the fundamentals of this problem. You know, in, in the future, we're going to spend a lot of time honing in on the metabolic effects of this disorder in humans and how excessive weight gain is not just an appearance issue, which if it was that, it wouldn't really be a big deal at all, right? Clearly, excess weight gain in humans is associated with many downstream risks, including uh, immune dysfunction, including diabetes, including heart disease, including many, many, many pathologic findings over time. One of the biggest problems, as noted, was fatty liver disease. In my residency in medical school training, fatty liver disease was almost uniformly related to alcohol consumption. And now we have fatty liver disease being mostly driven by sugar consumption and primarily low liquid sugars. So we have a major, major problem in society where excess caloric intake, which is being, you know, partially driven by the system that provides the calories that are, you know, unfortunately bad for us and we can consume more than we should as society. But that the reality is there are genetic, epigenetic and societal issues pressing us in this direction. There are social abnorms going on where you see kids being marketed uh, high sugar cereals, high sugar foods, high uh, refined processed foods in the morning when they're watching cartoons. And this is not regulated. This is considered normal. And these problems over time compound as we age. So if you're starting out at a very young age where you're consuming large volumes of these processed foods, you're not out in green spaces as much because maybe your environment is not as safe and or you're playing video games and watching TV now, which is easy to access for the quality that you like. So you wouldn't get bored of TV, which was the state of affairs when I was a kid. Half the shows on TV were not of interest to a child. So you wouldn't be watching all day long because there was nothing really that you wanted to watch. Now, that is not the case. You can play video games all day long. You can be on your phone day all day long. There is passive learning all day long that may or may not be in your best interest when it comes to the metabolic effects of existing, right? So humans, as well as most mammals on the planet, were meant to move a lot. And if we're not moving a lot, that's a problem. Couple it to poor quality foods, it's a double problem. Couple it to potential home stresses with adverse childhood events, it's a triple problem. And this goes on and on and on. So as Dr. Hassink clearly stated, we have not won this battle. We keep pushing and trying and setting up, you know, organizations to reduce the struggle of excess weight gain in children and adults. And we have really met with little benefit, right? So for me, structurally, we have to look somewhere else. And I, again, think that the major problem is coming from the easy access to these poor quality foods and the fact that we have this struggle with screens in our country. We have to get our society out more. But one of the bigger things that would be of most value to me would be changing the price point of high quality and low quality food. So if we flip flop this and change the subsidies from storable refined grains, which drives the production of these poor quality foods to uh, paying for the high quality foods, that is the proteins and the uh, fruits and vegetables that are really good for us, maybe the expense of the bad food would push people away from consuming more of it and the quality cost of the better food makes people push towards it. Again, these are very difficult things to do in our modern governmental system, but these are things that we should be looking towards. And we're going to move on in the next couple interviews with 
some specialists looking at why we consume certain foods based on the neuroscience. And also, we're going to talk about just the global land of the public health strategy against this uh, problem. And, and you know, tackling this in every way we can. So we're going to leave that one today here at this point, And we'll carry this conversation on next with Dr. David Katz. I hope you have a great day. As always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It's not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. It does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.